If you were here last week, you would have joined us in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus goes to the wilderness and he is tempted. He's tempted in three different ways, and we focused on the second temptation, which was a temptation for Jesus to utilize political power for the means of the kingdom. And Jesus turns down that temptation because he recognizes that the kingdom of God is not brought to bear through the politics of the world. And so we ended last week with this question, a prescient one, how does the kingdom of God affect my politics? Not how does the kingdom of God affect other people's politics, but how does the kingdom of God affect my politics? And we asked a secondary question, which was this, how do we make sure we don't ask, is God on my side? But instead, how do we seek to be on God's side during this cultural moment? And so today we continue that and we'll be in Luke chapter 4 again, looking at Jesus as he moves from the wilderness into the synagogue. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that this morning we have had the opportunity to worship you, that we've had the opportunity to listen to beautiful music, that we have been engaged by the word of God. And Lord, we pray that for these next few moments, your spirit will be with us wherever we are, whether we are on our couch, whether we are traveling, whether we have taken a moment with friends just to listen. Father, we pray that your spirit will calm our thoughts. We pray that each of us will be able to hear what you have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When George Washington delivered his inaugural address for the United States of America, he invoked God's guidance and he demurred about his qualifications for the role. And in a very pithy address, he gave the shortest inaugural speech coming in at 135 words. While William Henry Harrison's 1841 speech, lasting almost two hours, came in at 8,455 words, inaugural speeches set the tone for the incoming administration. Sometimes they are intended to persuade, as when Abraham Lincoln in 1861 urged the ceding southern states to avoid war or to heal and reconcile as when he stated his policy toward the defeated Confederacy in 1865, promising malice toward none and charity for all. Some presidents spoke directly to the nation's concern. Franklin D. Roosevelt, in his 1933 assertion, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself allayed the panic of a nation gripped in the midst of the Great Depression. And John F. Kennedy's 1961 challenge, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country, sent an idealistic message calling for change and for sacrifice on the part of the American people. Inaugural addresses give the president a first center stage opportunity to introduce their vision to the world and to the nation. And on Wednesday, January 2021, the president-elect of the United States of America will deliver his inaugural address. And like all other inaugural addresses before it, it will be an important moment for this nation. While our lives 
are important. We all recognize the power of words, and that is why inaugural moments are important, because words are important. We may think about some of the words we've used before in our life. For example, the words we use to invite someone on our first date together. It's a different type of words to the words we use for all subsequent dates. We may think about the words we use to apologize when words have flown out of our mouth in a fit of rage and the words that we use to apologize are important. We can think about the words we use to say goodbye to our loved one for the last time in contrast with the words that we use to say goodbye a thousand times before. Words are important. Words are meaning-making. Words create new worlds and new features and new visions. They create new possibilities. And in this week's reading, in the book of Luke chapter 4, we are treated to some important and weighty words. It's the words of Jesus. Not his last words, but his first words. At least the first words recorded by Luke when he begins his public ministry. The scene that we're going to look at this afternoon is very important for us to understand Jesus' vision and Jesus' ministry. In a sense, what we will look at today is Jesus' inaugural address to humanity. Last week, like I said, we met Jesus in the wilderness and he is tempted in different ways and he rejects the path of political power as a means to invoke and to bring about the kingdom of God. He rejects it even though political power given to him and this dominion that Satan was offering would have allowed Jesus to step into a place where nine out of ten people had a subsistence living. Although Jesus could have used political power to help the vast majority of people who were poor in grinding poverty, Jesus rejected political power. Jesus rejected political power that would have helped him to aid those who were disabled, those who were outcasts, those who were marginalized, those whose social status brought unrelenting waves of shame. Jesus rejected that political power. Jesus refused the temptation to wield political power and domination to relieve the crushing taxes that Romans would have brought to bear on their subject, especially as Jesus begins his ministry for new imperial building projects. All of these things would have been good, yet Jesus rejects the way of political power, even to alleviate the very real suffering of people during that time. Jesus was clear when he came into this world that the goals of the kingdom of God cannot be achieved through the means of the empires of the world. The goals of the kingdom of God cannot be achieved through the means of the empires of this world. If you were to pause right here, you may say, Andreas, this is really some very religious sounding things. This is incredibly pie in the sky. Are you telling me that the life of Jesus was on this sort of ethereal, non-physical thing called the kingdom of God? Surely there was more. And when we read the gospels, we will find that Jesus did not live an apolitical life. 
Jesus spent his brief but incredibly impacting ministry on earth, announcing, enacting, and inaugurating the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. And the message of the kingdom of heaven, this idea of God's effective rule and reign, both in our hearts and in the world, made a difference and agitated the aspirations and the machinations of those who did wield political power. Jesus' life, when looked through the lens of others who had political power, often had political overtones. And so, although Jesus did not seek to be political, his life confronted the politics of his day. And this is an important distinction. I'll repeat it. Although Jesus did not seek to be political, his life confronted the politics of his day. In Luke chapter 4, we find Jesus uh, in his early 30s returning back to Nazareth, then a place of about 400 people. And he goes to the local synagogue, perhaps the one he grew up in, when they knew him as little Jesus, and he enters during a service. And Jesus is given the favor of reading the scroll for the day. And Luke tells us that Jesus stands up and reads, and he's handed a scroll, and it would seem serendipitous, but we don't think so. And this scroll comes from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And Jesus, looking at this scroll, which would have contained chapters worth of reading, deliberately chooses a passage. And he utters his first public words as recorded by Luke. And this is what Jesus reads. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind. He has set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then Luke chapter 4 tells us, Jesus hands back the scroll, and then he sits down. If you've read this text before, it can be easy to try to um, try to look ahead in the sermon and say, well, I know where you're going to go if you have read these words of Jesus. But my friends, let's not move too far ahead in this moment. Because if you think about Jesus Christ, who is the covenantal God, who from Genesis chapter 3 has been seeking to reconcile humanity that has now been pushed apart because of sin. If you think about Jesus Christ, who for thousands of years has been thinking about the entrance he is going to have on the stage of the world. If you think about Jesus Christ, who then chooses in first century Palestine to enflesh himself as a uh, peasant carpenter and then to come into the world, how often do you think Jesus would have thought about his first inaugural words to a watching world? How often do you think Jesus would have repeated, maybe I can start this way. Maybe I should bring their attention to this passage. Maybe I should do this thing when I begin. And yet Jesus, with all the possibility in the world, with all the words available to him, decides to reiterate this Isianic prophet and to proclaim in this moment and in that synagogue that this is the agenda and the vision of the kingdom of God. 
I imagine that as Jesus sits down, runnels of whispers begin to snake their way through the synagogue. I hear people in my mind saying, our boy has come back. He's here for us. He's coming to save us. He is going to be Messiah. He's going to remove the jackpot of Roman oppression from our neck. He is for us. And then as they discuss and the swell of conversations subside, Jesus delivers a short post-reading homily that dashes their hope for special favor. Let's read it together in Luke chapter 4, verse 23. He said to them, you will surely say this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. Verse 26, but none of them, but to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them were cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. And as Jesus finishes, he upends the desire and the hope of everyone in that synagogue for there to be business as usual. In evoking Elijah and Elisha, the home crowd realizes immediately that Elijah and Elisha took the message of God and gave it to those who were outsiders rather than giving it to them so they could be winners. And so when Jesus evokes this, in his synagogue reason, they realize that Jesus is saying that God's message was for outsiders, to the last, to the least, to the lost, to the left behind, to the looked over. And when they realize this may not be them, their displeasure at Jesus for ruining their vision of winning through conventional means turns violent and murderous. The crowd tries to throw Jesus off a cliff, and in an interesting piece of writing, Luke harkens back to Jesus in the wilderness when he is tempted by Satan to throw himself off a high precipice. And when Jesus is taken to the edge of a cliff, we find that truly Psalm 91 is true, and God comes and rescues him from those who are trying to kill him, and Jesus goes away. So to recap, in this short but consequential reading in Luke chapter 4, we have found at the very beginning of Luke, Jesus tempted by the devil and tempted subsequently to use political power so that he can achieve the means of the kingdom. And then we find Jesus on this side threatened by the crowd because he's not going to use his power to achieve the kingdom of God. And so in between being threatened, being tempted by Satan, and being threatened by the crowd, in the middle of these passages is Jesus' inaugural words about what the kingdom of God truly is about. Jesus fords an alternate way about how to live faithfully in the world. And we're told in a very short sentence at the end of this pericope that Jesus, he went his way. If you've grown up in church, you've probably read this often and you have not paused at these four words. 
that Jesus went his way. But I pause at these four words because in this moment, my friends, whether you find yourself being on the left or on the right, whether you find yourself being pulled into bitter partisan strife, know that Jesus rejected the temptation to use political power and Jesus rejected the push to use um religious power to achieve the kingdom of God and instead created an alternate vision, a third way, and Jesus went his own way. Notice that in Jesus going his own way, he finds himself at odds with his family, with his friends, and with his entire village. In fact, he finds himself at such odds that they have violent and murderous intent because he does not tow the party line. Jesus is telling us some important stories. And so we find Jesus Christ talking about this alternate way of the kingdom of heaven, a way in which Jesus comes and frames both public righteousness and societal justice. And his address that he gave in the synagogue is an, is an address which is deeply grounded in the agenda of heaven. And this is important because this may be the place where some of you say, well, this is probably where you're going to go. I figured. But we have to recognize that Jesus grounds what he is saying and roots it deep, drives it deep in the agenda of heaven. This is not the agenda of the Roman imperial power, nor is it the agenda of the subjugated and oppressed peasant. This is the agenda of Jesus and the kingdom of heaven. And yet when he gives these words, we start to recognize that although his agenda is grounded deep in the covenantal kingdom agenda of heaven, it has an intersects with the everyday lives of the people who lived. It intersected with the affairs of earth. How? The first time when Jesus says this, he says, uh, we notice that Jesus' words has economic implications because Jesus says that he has come to preach the good news to the poor. When we look at the words of Jesus' inaugural address, we recognize it has not only economic implications, but it also has justice and legal implications because Jesus says he has come to proclaim liberty to the captives. And Jesus' proclamation has not only economic and justice implications, but it also has physical health implications. Jesus says he has come to bring recovery of sight to the blind. And Jesus' inaugural words has not only economic, has not only justice, has not only physical health implications, it has social political implications. Because he says he has come to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And finally, Jesus' words has not only, <laughs> let's go from the top, economic implications, justice and legal implications, physical and health implications, social, political implication, but even environmental implications. And you may be like, wait, what? Where's the environment in this, Andreas? It's there because Jesus speaks all of these words and he speaks out of the framework of the Jubilee. And the Jubilee was a time in the Old Testament when every single Israelite was to allow their land to go fallow and to rest for a year so that nature and creation itself would be restored. 
It was a time when you would forgive the debts of those who owed. If you had a slave who was an Israelite, you would let them go. And so this was speaking about an environmental and creational restoration. And Jesus Christ speaks to all of these in his inaugural address. And yet, Jesus had a very narrow focus of concern. His focus of concern was always the kingdom of heaven. But this narrow focus of concern, when you stepped through it, came into a large horizon of action. And this, for me, is such a challenging place to be because often we want to come to our areas of concern through political talking points and then follow it wherever it takes us. But Jesus Christ comes into the world with a very narrow focus point, which is the kingdom of heaven. But when he has this narrow point of focus, it opens up a broad horizon of concern. And this is an important thing for us to note. Jesus' kingdom focus took him to fields, to homes, to wells, to workplaces, to temples, to marketplaces, and to halls of power. And I think we'd agree that Jesus' inaugural words in Luke are both descriptive and and descriptive. They're both descriptive and prescriptive. There we go. In the sense that Jesus is describing what the kingdom of God ought to look like, And Jesus is also telling us how we ought to work for the kingdom of God within our realm and range of influence. And so if we were to take Jesus' words seriously and recognize that we are different people, but if we take Jesus' words seriously, we don't need to agree on the best, uh, on the details of the best economic policy for this country. But if we take Jesus' words seriously, his words will guide us to always consider those who are at the bottom. Always. We don't need to argue on the particulars of carceral policy, but we should all be concerned if we take Jesus' words seriously about the school-to-prison pipeline in under-resourced populations. When we take the words of Jesus seriously, we may not agree on whether single-payer or universal healthcare is the best, but we ought to be radically committed to excellent healthcare for all our neighbors, especially the ones at the bottom. We may differ on how to aid the oppressed, but our hearts should break. When life is oppressed, whether it's in the womb, at the border, in unjust systems, or under the knee of people abusing their power. Jesus' words compels us to take these things seriously. Jesus calls us as a community to an alternate way, to a third way, to a kingdom way. And he calls us to look at our life and the things that are important to us through that lens. Jesus calls us so that our imagination can be shaped by the kingdom of heavens and not formed by a diet of Fox News or MSNBC. Jesus wants us to interrogate every social issue, every political issue, through the framework of the kingdom of heaven and not our party's political talking points. And even if tribalism within this country and this bitter partisan divide will cause people to be disappointed with us, will cause us to find ourselves in a place like Jesus, pushed away by family, despised by friends, perhaps even in fear of violence or verbal abuse. We must recognize that Jesus calls us 
as his apprentice to follow his way. And yet, the way of Jesus, although focused narrowly through the kingdom of God, will always affect our lives. I'm going to read for you a a long quote which I think is important, speaking about how the lives of Christians were affected, and it's by Rodney Stark in his book, The Rise of Christianity, how the obscure marginal Jesus movement became the dominant religious force in the Western world in a few centuries. Phenomenal book. Listen to this quote by Stark. He says, Christianity, early Christianity, revitalized life in Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships able to cope with many urgent urban problems. To cities filled with the homeless and the impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fires, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. When you look at how early Christians interpreted the word of God and how it affected the way in which they lived, we know without a shadow of a doubt that as difficult as political conversations can be, that they are ones we cannot ignore because we are to steward what we have been given by God as followers of the way. And I think about early Adventists, early Sabbatarian Adventists, who compelled by a vision of the kingdom of heaven and who compelled by the conviction of the inestimable value of every human being, joined the abolitionist movement at the inception of our denomination. And these people met, agitated, petitioned, lectured, wrote, and waged a relentless war against slavery. Articles were written in the official organ of the Adventist church, the Review and Herald. And it was claimed that in 1862, to a person, every single Adventist voted for Abraham Lincoln. Now on Tuesday, if I were a betting man, which I am not, but if I were a betting man, (laughs) I would bet my house, listen carefully, I would bet my house that the members of the Walla Walla University Church, let alone all the members of the Adventist Church in the North American division, that you will not vote unanimously. I am sure of it. We read the same Bible and we come out with radically different and divergent views. But... Politics gives Christians an opportunity to actively love our neighbors through advocacy, policymaking, and our civic duty when we vote. And so my prayer is that on Tuesday, in our little corner of southeastern Washington, after we have prayerfully discharged our civic duty, guided by the vision of the kingdom of heaven, 
We will continue after Tuesday into Wednesday, into rainy Thursdays, into bright Sabbaths, into lazy Sundays. We will continue compelled by the vision of God and not provoked by the world and by the power of the indwelling Christ. I'm laying it all on pretty thick here because it's all important that we may be a people and a congregation who embody the great commandment of Jesus in Matthew 22 to love God with all of our heart and to love our neighbor as ourself. And through embodying that great commandment, and as a consequence, we will then live the great requirement of Micah chapter 6, when he says he has shown you, O mortal, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you and of me, of us, but to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God? Amen. Again, thank you for joining us this week. We hope that the service was a blessing to you and we're so glad you worshipped with us this Sabbath. Please let us know where you're joining us from. You can send us a message on our social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, on our church website. And we pray that you have a wonderful week and God's richest blessings go with you.